do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Are bestsellers all they're hyped up to be? The Terrible Book Club explores whether or not you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. If you've ever seen a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Hello and welcome to an episode of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Chris, and this is Ken. I'm Ken. Oh, <laughs> I hello, I am Ken. I have to introduce you, Ken, as a gentleman. That's the proper manner that we must do things here. Um, this is Ken from the Antiques Freaks, actually. You might know him from that podcast because it's a funnier podcast, and I like it a little bit better than my own podcast. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, wait, shit. No, I'm not supposed to be flattering. I, oh. This gentleman thing is hard. This gentleman thing is hard, Ken. Um, speaking of, we read The Gentleman's Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness being a complete guide for a gentleman's conduct in all his relations towards society by Cecil B. Harley. Subtitle, Rules for Etiquette to be Observed in the Street, at Table, in the Ballroom, Evening Party, and Morning Call, with full directions for polite correspondence, dress, conversation, manly exercises, and accomplishment. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah, this is a comprehensive book for sure. Ken, thank you for uh, recommending this for TBC Boys Club up in here. There is TBC no, Stack Night! Yeah, there is no feminine energy to be had whatsoever in here. It's just the fellas. We're messy we're smoking cigars as we are able to do, since there are no ladies about. That's what this book told me. Um, if this is your first time listening to The Terrible Book Club, what we do here is we read books based on their cover title or summary, which we assume to be bad. So we're doing the opposite of what you usually do when you walk into a bookstore or you're browsing Amazon. And usually this results in a disappointing read, but sometimes we are pleasantly surprised. Um, and in this case, I feel like, despite the era that this was written in, I feel like there was still some pretty decent advice in here overall, albeit dry and, um, lengthier than I would like. Yes, that's the <laughs> word there. Um, what else do we do at the top of the I'm so not used to being the one to do this. Um, oh yeah, content warnings. Um... I, I don't know, like... Period typical sexism of the 1870s. Yeah, period typical sexism and racism pops up in here. But not as much as I would have thought. There's plenty of sexism. There's actually, now that I'm... Rem there's Yeah, there's lots of gender roles. There's quite a bit here. of sexism. Less racism than you usually get, which was a treat, but still a touch here and there. Yeah, it's it pops up here. Okay, um, uh, so what else do we do at the top here? Oh, yeah, that's right. We're summarizing things. This is a book that covers... Um, Everything in the title. <laughs> yeah, that, all that stuff that Ken said, that was the summary, pretty much. 
Um, how about I just list the chapters that are at the start of this in this here table of contents? Also, thank you, Ken, for providing the public domain version <laughs> of this in which I could, you know, just read it for free on my phone. It's my favorite kind of book. So um, the chapters are introduction, a very gentlemanly thing to start with, conversation, politeness, table etiquette, etiquette in the street, etiquette for calling, etiquette for the ballroom, dance, which is separate somehow, manly exercises, traveling, etiquette in church, 100 hints, for gentlemanly deportment, parties, courtesy at home, true courtesy, which is somehow a separate chapter from courtesy at home, um, letter writing, very specific there. Then we close off with wedding etiquette, etiquette for places of amusement, and miscellaneous. I have to say, 100 Hints for Gentlemanly Deportment was the chapter I was most looking forward to, as it was most clearly the padding for time chapter. Oh, absolutely. I don't understand why this is separate from miscellaneous. Because it's an additional chapter you can submit to your publisher when he asks you for exactly, what, 27 chapters? I I guess, I suppose, you know... I'm not even going to follow any of our usual terrible book club stuff here. Like, I'm just spreading out. Paris is going to be so mad when she listens to this. She will be <laughs> furious with me. But eh, she ain't here to stop me right now. So, Chris, that is conduct unbecoming of a gentleman. I, I know I'm supposed to be kind and polite no matter who can see me at all times. But I'm, uh, you know what? I've just had a bad week where I haven't slept much. I just got home from work literally minutes ago. I am cramming some tea and sandwich in my face as we speak, and I am doing my best to be as gentlemanly as possible to you, Ken, which I hope you're feeling welcome here. I do. Thank you ever so much. I love what you've done with the parlor. Th thank you very much. I have done nothing. <laughs> I love the nothing you've done with the parlor. Well, you're such a gentleman. Uh, Ken, uh, uh, because I'm such a uh, mess and not in my right, um, proper gentlemanly comport and attire. I think I'm going to let you lead the way somewhat here. Um, we don't have to go chapter by chapter necessarily. I just kind of want you to start with, um, how did you feel about this book in general? Well, this book is interesting on a lot of levels. I wouldn't call it a good book. I would call it perhaps a useful book, if not necessarily for the use the author intended. The thing is, throughout like the history of books as an industry, there have been two types of books that consistently sell the best. One is romance, and the other is self-help. And self-help books sell well partially because everyone has a self that needs to be helped. That is true. But also, because everyone has a self that needs to be helped, they make excellent gifts for other people that you don't know anything about. Oh, is that a gentlemanly gift, do you think, Ken? According to the rules of this book? 
The author of this book would consider it a gentlemanly gift. However, as a bewildered teenager, I would not have considered it a gentlemanly gift. True. Well, <laughs> things certainly have changed with the times, which is definitely- How many copies of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People have you received over the course of your life, Chris? Because for me, it's three. I've gotten two, so you have a higher score <laughs> than me. So, you know, you know how it goes, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Have you also gotten the one that's like how to win friends and influence people? Yes, 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 yes. I've gotten three of those. <laughs> so, yeah, the, definitely this is in that self-help genre. I didn't know that those were the top two, but it definitely makes sense now, now that I'm yeah. hearing it from you. So this book was written to get people to behave themselves, but also written for cash. This was straight up a cash grab. <laughs> Almost certainly. What, was the author paid by the page or perhaps the word? Because, boy, is there a lot of repetition in here. This is not a Penny Dreadful or a magazine situation, so he was not paid by the word. He was probably asked to produce a certain number of chapters to a certain page count, dividing the material up as he saw fit. Yeah, because there's a lot of um, repeated ideas in here. I can't there tell you are. how many times <laughs> I read, hey, let a woman sit down before you. That came in all sorts of varieties, and apparently just because, oh, this is happening at a wedding versus this is happening at a party versus that this is happening at a place of amusement versus this is happening on the train, it was worth repeating 700 times throughout this whole book. Oh, yes. My favorite example of repetition, which I have also filed under the heading of bizarre advice, is... Avoid personality. Nothing is more ungentlemanly. So, yes, I was very confused about this. Um, I should let the listeners know that, as I did before we started recording here, Ken, that I cram read this like I was trying to study for some kind of <laughs> etiquette test that I suppose you're the one uh, dishing out to me here. But um, Chris is desperate to graduate from finishing yes. school at last. <laughs> Finally, I've been stuck here for years and years and years. I'm tired of these shorts and this stuffy coat. I need to get out. <laughs> this stupid little bow tie. I have to be free. I know. I need seven of them for some reason for different occasions. I don't understand which one. Um, so anyway, yeah, I did definitely did not memorize all the little different rules in here. But there was enough repetition for me to rem remember Hey, don't, you know, make sure a woman sits down before you. But the that one definitely stuck out to me quite a bit. Personality is forbidden. Avoid personality. Nothing is more ungentlemanly. And then several chapters later, remember that true wit never descends to personalities. So I definitely got the sense reading this book that the plot or the ploy here, I suppose, the general idea is that you should behave as completely within a certain set of rules and bounds as to never be too remarkable at all. Yes. Be fashionable, but not too fashionable. Be witty, but not too witty. Eat, but not too much. Smoke, never. Try, apparently. but don't be a tryhard. Yes. This is a very tight line to walk, and that I, I suppose... That whole point about having personality just means don't be too loud or boisterous is how I took it, perhaps? You have more of an idea about it than I have, because I had no fucking clue. I was completely <laughs> flummoxed by this particular piece of advice. <laughs> I think it really means have no originality or personality in the way that you should behave exactly the same as everyone else if you're following this guidebook of gentlemanliness. Yes, but 
God, what? <laughs> Important enough that he saw fit to mention it twice. Still no idea what he meant, because he doesn't elaborate on either of those points. Yeah, it's a devastating rule set here, because there is such a long list of processes to follow and things to have at the ready and grooming and preparation you should be doing at all time. Like, I'm not, you know, shitting on grooming here, but, like, basically saying you should always have the exact right thing for every possible occasion. And there's, like, the one thing that got me was, like, the seven different coats you should have for various occasions. Oh, yes. All of them basically blue or black is what I gathered. Yes. So, like, I... I can't imagine anyone was truly hitting all of these points constantly. No, that's the other thing. We cannot assume from this book that this is how everyone behaved. This is how one man in this time period thought people ought to behave. Yes. And from that, I kind of wanted to ask you, um, obviously, for me, it's hard to memorize all these rules because I don't live in this time period and there's not a lot of social pressure informing me how dare you wear the house coat while you're out riding you didn't wear a bo the proper bow tie when we went to the wedding versus the place of amusement so i'm assuming that someone that lives in this time period would perhaps have some of that social pressure about them to have all these rules somewhat at the forefront or, yes. or memorized I don't know about memorize. They might be continually referring back to this book if they refer to it at all and don't just put it in a drawer like all of my copies of Seven <laughs> Habits of Highly Effective People. But if, for example, they bought this for themselves as a member of the Nouveau Riche or someone who has just been promoted from stockboy to clerk and wants to kind of act like his new middle class self, <laughs> he might be referring back to this repeatedly just to make sure he's got it down and making himself very annoying at parties as a result yeah i feel like anyone that was following this book to the letter would be just a drag on any occasion that's happening despite <laughs> well the no because several times we are informed that it is ungentlemanly to be a drag at parties. <laughs> true that's what i was about to bring up was that there's many points in the book that says well hey even if you're following all these rules don't try to you know put this on someone else that's misbehaving outside of this rule set at a party. You're just supposed to take it on the nose and lead by example. That is the true gentlemanly thing to do. Pages and pages on the evils of pedantry in a book that is extremely pedantic. I Like nothing but pedantic, if that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a lot of chapters here. Um, I don't think we will not be able to cover all of this material here. Else we'll be here. No forever no, 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 no. and i'm sure you have things to do and i as again as a gentleman <laughs> i shall not be keeping you too long yet another thing that is mentioned in this book about the amount of time you should be spending when arriving at someone's house or running into them on the street indeed unless you have something of real importance to ask or communicate do not stop a gentleman in the street during business hours you may detain him from important engagements and though he may be too well bred to show annoyance he will not thank you for such detention Okay, well, this is a perfect time for me to bring up this book's obsession with being well-bred. This is the phrase that is used constantly throughout this book. Boy, ain't it gross. Yes! because <laughs> all the phrases. I, I, am trying, all the phrases. I am trying to be a gentleman, but you have to keep bringing up my parents fucking all the time, sir. 
I wish you wouldn't. I'm just trying to have a gentlemanly dinner here, and you keep mentioning how bad or good they got it on. Please refrain. <laughs> I implore you, sir. Please stop. I beg of you, sir. Was this a common phrase back then? Do you have any idea? It was, yes. Yes, indeed. It is shockingly common in 19th century literature, both fiction and nonfiction, because society at the time was kind of obsessed with the concept. So, And Charles Darwin didn't help matters with introducing the concept of evolution. Oh boy. Again, Charlie, just ruining everything for everyone. <laughs> so I guess I want to ask, do you think the well-bred thing is coming from you had two high-class parents and therefore you are well-bred? Or is well-bred... That is the origin of the phrase, yes. But it seems to me, like, in this book, it's used more like, if you behave yourself properly, you can be well-bred even if your parents were not from a higher class. Correct. This is a very new idea coming into society from the 19th century, and largely as a result of America being a quote-unquote classless society. Oh boy. I'm sh yeah, that t totally panned out here. <laughs> It, did, it didn't work out, yeah. but, you know, they were they were going for something. This book was written in Amer for Americans? I'm, it, it's, oh. Yes, this is an American book for Americans, which is interesting because at least half of the book itself is quotations from another unnamed English author. This really got my goat. Let me tell you, at the, e like, at the end of nearly every chapter is quotations There's another chapter. from other works. <laughs> This is, I mean, he does say at the end, like, don't plagiarize, but like, okay, I know you're quoting here, but when you say, I'm quoting from some Englishman, how is that not plagiarism if you're not giving due credit? Most ungentlemanly. Copyright law was still working out the kinks. This is the time period in which Charles Dickens was having trouble with his works being plagiarized in America before he could, like, officially bring them over through a publisher and there were cross-Atlantic races to be the first person to perform Jacqueline Hyde on stage and therefore attain the copyright for the work. Just people shoving each other off of the theater Basically, stage. Basically, yes. No, it's my turn. I can do it. I can do Jacqueline Hyde. Get out of here. I was first. First. Rather, yes. People posting in the play comments that they were first. Or I don't know if that works that way. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, at the end of nearly, in the middle of a lot of chapters too, we just, I would say, okay, put it this way, Ken, what percentage of this book would you say is quoted from other material? At least 50%, if not higher. Yes. I would be deaf. I would lay a large amount of money on 50%, despite the book's many, many warnings against gambling. And I would also... <laughs> Wage a smaller number that it is somewhere between 60 and 70. I, I would place that same bet, good sir, because <laughs> it's it's alarming how much you were he was allowed to just say other people's stuff. I suppose part of me thought like, oh, it's because books are harder to come by, but they weren't that hard to come by. Not by 1875, no. By 1875, publishing industry was running just fine. So, if you were reading this, why not just go get that book, which this guy seems to refer to a whole lot, wherever that was from? I think that might be part of the reason why he's not naming it, because he doesn't want to encourage <laughs> someone to buy a completely different book. I think it might be The Habits of Good Society is the unnamed English author, and the named English author 
I think he had no compunction about naming because that guy had been dead for a hundred years. That guy was Lord Chesterfield, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield. Oh, um, this seems to be mostly letters to his son, which I'm assuming Lord Chesterfield yes. published. No, that was published by the widow of his illegitimate son a year after Lord Chesterfield's <laughs> death. Because Lord Chesterfield did not leave her any money to live off of. That's okay. So she, having all of the man's correspondence to his son, her husband... She sold it to a publisher. And it's kind of funny because he was a British diplomat and acclaimed wit while he was alive. But after he's dead, he's only famous for the letters he never intended to show to the general public. (laughs) Okay, let me be clear. These were the letters to the illegitimate son? Yes. From what I can see, he treated his illegitimate son basically as a legitimate son. And was like, all right, you're my kid. Everyone knows it. And this is how you're going to have to behave in the world if you want to be a gentleman. I, that's basically what I wanted to say is that this is just a series of letters ha- with this man just describing exactly how this person should behave in society. Which to me, yes. I don't know, man. I'd get tired of that pretty quickly. My dad does that to me already a whole lot. <laughs> it's like I'm 32 and the dude will still explain to me how to properly reheat pasta. Huh. Every single time pasta is brought up at all, he must explain to me how to properly reheat the pasta. I have heard how to do this hundreds of times. I am sick of it. I understand. You put a little water in there, and that makes it so it's steamy and not dry. I get it, dude. I've heard this this little tip I've heard thousands of times by now. Please stop. <laughs> it's just my little grievance here. That's, I felt that in Chesterfield's son, I felt I had a little bit of camaraderie which i'm sure um he felt back then through time and space (laughs) absolutely we'll get him we'll call him up on the ouija board and let him know i'm sure he'll be thrilled um speaking of food i kind of want to jump into my absolute favorite chapter in this book which is the table manners chapter which to me um i'm you know i feel like people are most fascinated with uh this era for their table manners and etiquette because it seems, oh, it's so stuffy and there's so many rules. But I mean, there's not that many crazy rules in here. He's not talking about like particular fish knives and spoons to be had and anything. It's mostly just, well, let the lady sit down at the table and don't, you know, stuff your face, please. I noticed that it was in general lighter than the equivalent chapter would be in a book written for ladies or for people in general for example manners and tone of good society has a much longer chapter on dinner parties which is a lot of fun what's the meat of the extra part of that like what is why is it so much longer in that other work because that other work being intended for a woman she would likely be either in charge of a housekeeper or her own housekeeper and thus directly in charge of the cook and responsible for making sure that the menu was good, that everything came out on time, that everything was prepared correctly, that everything went smoothly. And she would have to know how to send out the invitations for the dinner party and how to seat everyone at the dinner party because she's the hostess. So she has to know where everyone goes, what time they eat, what they eat when, what comes out in what order, which wines are paired with which food everything of course and that's my also favorite example in this book of sort of the more subtle sort of sexism that's not outright like those women folk are weak and frail which also happens in this book plenty of times that talks about their you know lower constitutions but can i jump to my favorite sexist absolutely just hit me with it (laughs) because i do have a subsection of my notes 
labeled sexist advice. (laughs) Oh, good. We can get to that. When speaking of talking to women at parties or in general conversation, he says, This facility of comprehension often startles us in some women whose education we know to have been poor and whose reading is limited. If they did not rapidly receive your ideas, they could not, therefore, benefit companions for intellectual men, and it is, perhaps, their consciousness of a deficiency which leads them to pay the more attention to what you say. It is this which makes married women so much more agreeable to men of thought than young ladies, as a rule, can be, for they are accustomed to the society of a husband, and the effort to be a companion to his mind has engrafted the habit of attention and ready reply. So what he's saying there is... I know sometimes you will be shocked to find a woman able to keep up with you in a conversation, but don't worry. This is because she has the influence of a strong man in her life. Oh, yeah, that's that's a doozy right there. It's a lot. And all this while he thinks he's paying the utmost compliment to married women. Right? Like, it's not even subtle how he's saying, like, well, these women have to pay attention more to what people are saying, and therefore that's why they're smarter. And not because you've just had to listen to men prattle on about some bullshit your entire life, and that's going to probably make you a little bit better of a listener, just, you know, by happenstance, because you fucking had to listen to these idiots who think they're in such high regard because they're talking about, I don't know, gentlemanly activities such as hunting and boxing or, I don't know, all the other things that could be happening here. I'm reminded of the chapter of Little Women where the eldest daughter has married and is going off to build her new household with her husband and they have some initial marital trouble because she can't keep up with him when discussing politics because she can't read the newspaper. Not that she can't, she is literate, it's just that she has other things to do, like run the entire house. And then she goes to her mom for advice, and her mom's like, well, try to take an interest in his interest by reading the newspaper and discussing politics with him, but be careful not to advance your own ideas too much and just kind of reflect his. And then I had to put the book down and go for a walk for a bit, because what the fuck? Yeah, you know, you don't want to seem too smart here and surprise a gentleman when you're able to keep up in conversation. You wouldn't want to disagree with your husband. Uh, Um, so yeah, back to table manners. After the lady of the house has done all this planning and preparation, all you really got to do as a gentleman is make sure the lady that you have come with is seated first. Although there's like this whole like entrance into the dining room thing that is that happens here where it's like, okay, you have to take her by the left arm and then pull out her chair and then make sure she's seated and then take your seats. And the rest of it is generally like... Don't stick your fingers in the food, you monster, and make sure everyone around you has a fair share of everything, which is about the extent of it, I would say. That's most of it, yeah. There is that delightful quotation from the unnamed English author, which is basically a one-woman play about the worst dinner guest of all time and desperately attempting to correct his behavior throughout the dinner. Yeah, in fact, this is my absolute favorite passage in the entire book because I can literally hear all of the comedy instruments happening at the same time while I read this. There's the, you know, the tuba bass line. We've got some pizzicato strings. There's a clarinet in there, perhaps even a trombone giving us some delightful accents there. Um, delightful womp womp. Yes, exactly. And um, I would like to read just a small short segment of this. Oh, please do. Because it is, um, it's quite lengthy and I'm not going to do the entire thing. 
All right, here we go. However, let us go to dinner, and I will soon tell you whether you are a well-bred man or not. And here, let me promise that what is good manners for a small dinner is good manners for a large one, and vice versa. Now the first thing you two to do is sit down. Stop, sir! Pray do not cram yourself into the table that way. No, nor sit a yard from it like that. How graceless, inconvenient, and in the way of conversation. Why, dear me, you are positively putting your elbows on the table, and now you have got your hands fumbling about with the spoons and forks, and now you are nearly knocking my new hawk glasses over. Can't you take your hands down, sir? Didn't you learn that in the nursery? Didn't your mama say to you, never put your hands upon the table except to carve or eat? Oh, but come, no nonsense, sit up if you please. I can't have your fine head of hair forming a side dish on my table. You must not bury your face in the plate. You came to show it and it ought to be alive. Well, but there is no occasion to throw your head back like that. You look like an alderman, sir, after dinner. Pray, don't lounge in that sloppy way. You are here to eat, drink, and be merry. You can sleep when you get home. Well then, suppose I can see your napkin on yourself or others. There is always one before the dish at every well-served table, and you should use that. It is a good plan to accustom yourself to using your fork with the left hand when eating, as you then avoid the awkwardness of constantly pushing the fork from your left hand to the right and back again when cutting your food and eating it. Never put fruit or bonbons in your pockets to carry them from the table. Do not eat fruit with a steel knife. Use a silver one. Never cut so fast as to hurry the others at the table, nor so slowly as to keep them waiting. If you do not take wine, never keep the bottle standing before you, but pass it on. If you do take it, pass it on as soon as you have filled your glass. If you wish to remove a fishbone or fruit seed from your mouth, cover your lips with your hand or napkin that others may not see you remove it. If you wish to use your handkerchief and have not time to leave the table, turn your head away and as quickly as possible put the handkerchief in your pocket again. And this goes on and on and on with and a... on with all the wacky clattering trash cans in the background and the screech of a single alley cat <laughs> and yes. the chaos this man has wreaked upon this dinner party. Um, there is one line in this um, that I believe is in this area, but let me hunt for it here. It is my absolute favorite line in the book. Put as a very, it seems like solid rule that you cannot break. And that rule is never take soup twice. Never <laughs> Take soup twice, good sir. It is absolutely ungentlemanly. And I I just wondered why that was such such a hard and fast rule. It was declarative at the end of a paragraph. Never take soup twice. Never. Personally, I'm a soup lover. I have a tattoo of ramen on my wrist, which I suppose is an ungentlemanly (laughs) thing to begin with. So I can already take soup as I please, I suppose, having broken that rule. But just like... Is this because you're delaying others from their next course, I think? I would assume so. What if it's really good soup, though? I honestly have no idea. What if it's really good soup, though? Aren't you don't know being gentlemanly in some fashion by complimenting the chef and the hostess for having picked the soup? What if I eat the soup really fast, much faster than the rest of the party, just gobbling it into my face? Much ungentlemanly, but just because I like it so much. Can I take soup twice then? 
Is that okay, good sir? But in taking soup, will you be starting to dip the bowl of your spoon fully into the bowl of soup and move it away from you rather than towards you so as not to splatch your white shirt front? Um, no, I'm trying to gobble that soup as much as I can. I'm being splattered. Then as- you are no gentleman, sir. Good day. <laughs> All the times I've eaten ramen in my life have been most ungentlemanly. Let me tell you that. I've always left covered well, the in oil. way to eat ramen is not as these people would have it. <laughs> I've always been covered in oil of some fashion whenever I have left a ramen shop, and I am glad for it, sir. I will take my soup as I please, and twice. Good day. But yeah, I feel like that whole passage is just like the lost vagina monologue. (laughs) Very much so. The bumbling oaf that is being spoken to just, you know, cannot follow any rule. I, especially, You can see that from the start where it's like, do not cram yourself into the table, nor sit a yard away from it. It's like that good, sir. He's just fumbling at every possible opportunity. This guy's a real fuck up, let me tell you. <laughs> okay, Ken, um, what was your favorite chapter? I can't pick a favorite chapter. I just picked my favorite quotations from each chapter. Because they were kind of sprinkled throughout the work. It was an evenly mediocre work with little chocolate chip sprinkles of decency and goodness. <laughs> I mean, I did appreciate the conversation chapter somewhat because I, it had some very shallowly good advice, advice about like, hey, don't talk too much. Let others have their turn. But it was also very specific about the amount of people that can be allowed to talk at length amongst a group of people. It was like, okay, for every six to eight people, one person is allowed to talk a lot. And everyone else can sort of nod and agree. I can give you my favorite pieces of bad advice. Yes, absolutely. Why don't you just take it? I'm going to let Ken, you're going to take the lead here. I feel like I've been most ungentlemanly here. And just prattling on here, so you've, I'm going to let you take Frankly, the Chris, you've shown a lot of personality, and I don't know that I'm okay with it. I know. I'm just But as a gentleman, so I would be not be so coarse as to mention it to you, except we are, in fact, discussing etiquette. It's true. So I apologize for this. I will send you a letter <laughs> of excuse. You see, I had just come home from my job, and I was feeling unwell, and I felt as if I had to prattle on to maintain an entertaining uh, conversation with you, good sir. In, in apology, I shall permit you to uh, lay upon me your favorite quotations from the work that we have read separately. Uh, Both of these pieces of bad advice involve interacting with ladies. Shock of shocks. Oh, good. Um, The first is not quite so bad, but it is a little... uh... In case of a sudden fall of rain, you may, with perfect propriety, offer your umbrella to a lady who is unprovided with one. So far, so good. If she accepts it and asks your address to return it, leave it with her. Fine, sure, normal. If she hesitates and does not wish to deprive you of the use of it, you may offer to accompany her to her destination. I really want that umbrella back, lady. Listen, I bought it at a high price, and you better give it back to me. Where do you live? Yeah, here's the thing. Maybe I'm looking at this from a modern perspective, but usually... If a woman says, oh, no, thank you, I don't want you to go through the trouble, that's what we call a soft no. That's a, I don't want to interact with you anymore, but I'm not going to say that outright because you might have a knife. Yes. um, I picked up on this fairly quickly uh, in my dating extravagances, and I feel like I'm very oblivious in general 
to a lot of things and even <laughs> i could go like oh you're saying no thanks to me accompanying you further that's a really easy read for me to go like oh you probably don't want me around anymore all right see you later have the umbrella i'll buy another one yeah or even if I don't want to take your umbrella, that means I don't want to be beholden to you, sir, because God knows what you will demand in exchange. Of course, yes. I, I also don't know how many knives are in it. <laughs> it's just full of knives. You open this umbrella and it's, it's my gentlemanly weapon. Oh, I'm sorry. I gave you the knife umbrella. The second one is a very similar piece of advice that is still more alarming. You will pay a delicate compliment and one that will certainly be appreciated if, when a lady declines your invitation to dance on the plea of fatigue or fear of fatigue, you do not seek another partner, but remain with the lady you have just invited, and thus imply that the pleasure of talking with and being near her is greater than that of dancing with another. Hey, a girl at a dance says she's too tired to dance? That means, please stop talking to me, I hope you don't have a knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really coming back That's around not, to- please. Hang around and prevent anyone else from rescuing me from this situation. <laughs> that yeah, that's not what she's asking. This is not a delicate compliment. This is a red flag. That particular passage, I remember having that feeling towards because there are some other passages where it's like, well, in the company of other gentlemen, you know, don't tarry too long, don't take up their time or space if it's clear that they don't want you hanging around. Right. Them. But with ladies, it's like, nah, put yourself up in their shit. Because it's complimentary Absolutely. to them to imply that you like she them so much. She must need so you for much. something. Hang around until she finally asks for it. Uh, Wait patiently in absolute silence, staring. <laughs> Most gentlemanly, of course. Uh, speaking of serial killer behavior. Oh, yes. There's also the, again, starts normal, gets weird advice of offer your seat in any public conveyance to a lady who is standing. Sure. It is often quite as great a kindness and mark of courtesy to take a child in your lap. Now, okay, I get where he was going with this, yes. but I am forcibly reminded of the passage in Devil in the White City, the book about the Chicago World's Fair and also the serial killer H.H. Holmes, describing the episode in which H.H. Holmes did this, courteously took a child onto his lap on the train, and then the mother had a hell of a time getting the kid back from him. Yeah, that so that also alarmed me when I read it. I tried to rationalize it with like, oh, well, back then people weren't so, um, I don't want to say frightened. Frightened is the wrong word, but just like careful with their children around strange men. But I don't think that was quite the case either back then. No, but maybe they should have been because God knows how many women H.H. Holmes rendered down into skeletons in the basement of his murder hotel. Yes, that, you know, that's a fine example, perhaps an unfine example. (laughs) But yeah, that uh, maybe you could just give the kid the seat. If you're willing to give up the seat to the woman, just give it to the kid, too. Right. Like, that's that's the more gentlemanly thing to do. Maybe you just stand up and you just keep standing for the remainder of the ride and you go away without imposing on anyone. Yes. What else you got for me, Ken? There is also the weird advice, mm-hmm. which would be avoid any air of mystery when speaking to those next to you. It is <laughs> ill-bred and in excessively bad taste. This came up like three times in the book, I'm pretty sure. Yes, because there is another passage several chapters later that says to affect an air of secrecy or mystery when conversing in a ballroom is a piece of impertinence for which no lady of delicacy will thank you. Does this mean whispering? Is that what th- this means? Possibly. 
Maybe. I don't know. He's being awful mysterious about I, his impositions I, I against feel, history. I feel like he's breaking his own rule here because I don't... You're, the air of mystery in this sentence here, sir, is most unbecoming. <laughs> it is heavy and thick like a fog over London, yes. Does he just mean being cagey and, like, not letting people know, like, what you meant by... I have... I'm baffled. All I can think is, like, the way hipsters will be like, oh, I'm super into this thing, you've probably never heard of it, and no, I won't explain it any further. Like... True. I have no idea, though. But I do have the additional hint of never feign abstraction in society. Now, that has quite the air of mystery, because I'm not quite (laughs) sure what abstraction means here. Uh, In this context, it would mean just being kind of out of it, being a bit of a space case, not really paying attention to what's going on around you. Oh, I see. Being a millennial on your phone. (laughs) Well, everyone's not a gentleman anymore. Put it that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so similar to that not having an air of mystery. Um, wait, I lost my train of thought. I don't know what I was going to say after that. You were abstracted? Yes, I was indeed abstracted. I'm not feigning it, though, so it's still gentlemanly. <laughs> How am I doing on this test so far, Ken? Let's uh, let's let's tally up at the end. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I don't I don't think I'm doing that great, to be honest with you. But I never pretended to be much of a gentleman. (laughs) Okay. Anything else weird for us, Ken? The ones that puzzled me, they're not necessarily weird pieces of advice. They're just the absolute opposite of what I've been told all my life, which Mm. is, if you are obliged to leave a large company at an early hour, take French leave. Slip away unperceived if you can, but at any rate without formal leave taking. And then again, later in the book, he says, if you are alone and obliged to retire early from an evening party, do not take leave of your hostess, but slip away unperceived. I've always been told that's an Irish goodbye and I should stop doing it. Yes. So, like, <laughs> interesting that it has flipped nationalities at some point. Yes, rather. At first it was a French thing to do, then it was an Irish thing to do. Although, you know, just using those phrases in general seems a little bit not nice in... <laughs> Any sort of context. But yeah, for the rest of this book, it's like being very polite and having your manners about you. Why is slipping away when you're alone the polite thing to do? I think they're trying to say don't draw all the attention to yourself as a party by distracting the hostess from the, frankly, burden of being a hostess. And be like, oh, I'm leaving now. Goodbye, everybody. The party is worse because I am leaving. Yes, I think this might have been a relic of the days when being a hostess was more formal and being a guest was more of a duty than a pleasure. Yeah. Whereas now, if you're at a house party, it's because you are either intimate friends with most of the people there or it's just like packed to the gills and no one can hear you say goodbye. Yeah, pretty much. So (laughs) I imagine someone at a house party loudly announcing that they are leaving. (laughs) Probably still very ungentlemanly behavior at this stage. Way funnier, though. Yes. Hey, everyone. (laughs) I'm out of here. Just wanted to let the hundreds of people at this party know. It's no longer fun. Just unplugging the amp and screaming (laughs) directly to the mic. Hey! I'm gone now. Just thought everyone should know. Just so you know, the party is essentially over because I'm leaving. There's an after party at Denny's, which I'm sure you'll all be much more willing to attend than this. I'm having French toast there after my very un-French goodbye here. (laughs) Oh, okay. Give me a grand slam. (laughs) all right keep going ken just lay them on me there was also and maybe this is just me being me a note of homoeroticism in the text 
I mean, I didn't want to be the one to say it, but I was definitely giggling a whole lot. <laughs> okay, okay, so it's not just me, then. Okay, I mean, there's many mentions of <laughs> gay parties and gay events and... Oh, that, that wasn't even what I was going for. I'm just going for... Oh. Every time he mentions this is the attention you should pay a lady, he also mentions that for a certain gentleman, you could pay it to them as well, if they are old or infirm, or sometimes if they're just there. Okay, so yes. Because, like... He says, at a dinner party, if there are no ladies, you may go to the table with any gentleman who stands near you, or with whom you may be conversing when dinner is announced. And if your companion is older than yourself, extend to him the same courtesy which you would use towards a lady. So old men. I'm assuming this is attempting to show deference to age. But I'm also imagining the scenario where you attempt to show deference to age, and the gentleman replies in dignity that he is not that old yet, and take your hand <laughs> off his arm, sir. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a, a ripe opportunity for a comedy of uh, bad etiquette. Oh, yes. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I was misreading that entirely when I was just, you know, going through the book. And as we all know, the term gay back then just meant you know, sort of mirthful. We haven't yet told the straights what it meant yet. Yes. It just, it really just meant having an atmosphere of joy and having a good time. Having a good time, and through having a good time, it became a euphemism for female sex workers, and through being a euphemism for female sex workers, became a euphemism for sex works in general, including the uh, sex work done by the community of queer men, and then it became a euphemism for queer men in general, not just those involved in sex work, and that is where we stand today. Thank you very much for that history, Ken. All I was going to say is that I feel like the straights in general today aren't having a whole lot of fun. Um, it seemed very uh, too uptight about a lot of things, so I th somewhat appropriate in that respect. <laughs> we definitely see it seems a little less mirthful over here and much too constrained by rule sets, which I guess is the whole point of this book in a way, too. It's just like, oh, all these rules. Why do I have to follow all these rules just to be manly or gentlemanly? <laughs> And yet, when he at, when the author instructs us on how to take a companion out on a carriage ride, he says, On reaching the door of your companion's residence, whom we will suppose to be in this case a lady, though the same attention may be well extended to a gentleman. Mm. And then later on he says, Could you, Should your companion be a gentleman and a horseman, the courtesy is always to offer him the reins, though the offer, if made to yourself by another with whom you are riding, should always be declined, unless, indeed, the horse should be particularly hard-mouthed and your friend's arm should be tired, in which case you should relieve him. So why the distinction at all between how to act towards ladies and gentlemen in this case, when it's basically the same thing? Yeah. I... Here's the thing. I'm not, like, an official student of 19th century literature, but I am certainly an amateur enthusiast when it comes to 19th century literature, and I don't mm -hmm. often read of gentlemen riding out with gentlemen. That doesn't happen very often in the books I've read. Usually, if gentlemen go riding together, they're each on their own separate horse. They're not just kind of standing in a barouche together. <laughs> That's kind of what I was imagining here. I had a lot of trouble when I read this chapter. I was like, are they on the same horse? Are they on different horses until I got to that passage? I was like, oh, they're on the same horse. It's not It's not the same horse. It's in the same carriage. Oh, okay. It's a carriage. Okay, so I'm yes. still confused. Really failing this test here, Ken. <laughs> the reading comprehension is low. 
don't cram study for your etiquette tests, people. <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, while we're on the subject of writing, I kind of wanted to bring up the sub my one of my favorite titles of chapters in this book, which is Manly Exercises. Before we get to Manly Exercise, I would just like to finish off the... Oh, uh, of course, I apologize. Sorry. Few more notes of homoeroticism. When describing winter sports, he says, the sleigh filled with laughing female beauties and beauties, too, of the sterner sex, which, I all mean, right. Yeah, okay. Sure. Okay. If you want to put and it that way. And then there's just the lengthy allegorical passage regarding David and Jonathan and how Jonathan's behavior toward David marked him as a true gentleman in the Bible. And for those of you who don't know, David and Jonathan, those are the guys in the Bible who bind their souls together like man binds to wife. A yeah, lot. I mean, it <laughs> like, seems pretty direct allegory here. It's, yeah, they're not subtle about it, is the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up on that one, too. <laughs> it's like, okay, Cecil. That's, yeah, so I don't know if this author knew what he was doing, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what happened here. And I mean, like day. to be clear, be a gentleman to everyone, regardless of what their gender or orientation is of course but if you're making so many distinctions throughout the book here between how to act when a lady is present but then sometimes also be like well if there's another gentleman with you treat him the same way as well why don't you just have the set of rules and not divide them just say act like this and then no matter who is around you do that He does often remind gentlemen to not get in the habit of swearing or making double entendres because, God forbid, we fall into the habit so hard that we accidentally do it when ladies are present. True. You can't swear, do double entendres, or smoke when ladies are present. Um, You got anything more from that section, Ken? That is it for the homoeroticism, so we are free to go into manly exercise. Thank you. I've been waiting so long to (laughs) list the manly exercises according to this book. They are riding, as we have heard already, driving, which is different from riding, because you're not on the horse, you're behind the horse. Um, Boxing, of course, the manliest, even though that's like the shortest section in this chapter. (laughs) Sailing, hunting, and skating. The boxing section, if I'm remembering correctly, is just him saying, don't beat the absolute tar out of your opponent. Just don't be a dick about it. (laughs) Oh, also, I'm sorry. Swimming and cricket are also options for manly exercise as well. They are, yes. Learning to swim in clothes is particularly important because you might have to jump in to save someone drowning. And if there are ladies present, you can't get naked first. Yes. (laughs) That was like literally the passage. It's just like, hey. Um, you cannot uh, undress before uh, you try to save someone drowning because there might be a lady present. Also, you, you want to, you know, those are crucial moments to save someone from drowning. But heaven forbid a lady sees you undressing to save someone in the water as well. This is Most an era where a lady cannot see a gentleman in his shirt sleeves if she is not related to him. Meaning he can't take off his. Thank you for clawing apart the couch just as I was speaking. That was so sweet of you. Apologies for my cat. most ungentlemanly so ungentlemanly this cat uh yeah so mean you cannot take off your coat or jacket and bear your waistcoat and the sleeves of the shirt you're wearing not even the entire shirt just the sleeves of it without offending propriety 
I mean, I bought all these coats because etiquette demanded it, so I'm definitely wearing them as long as I possibly can. Oh, indeed. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are your choices for mainly exercises. What I liked is that, um, even though there's mention of exercising in the morning, every chance you get with the dumbbell, uh, weightlifting isn't part of this at all. You are given the advice to pick an object in your room and box with it until you're covered in sweat. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It, it specifically says to take your hatred out on some object in your room. Just every morning for 10 minutes, beat the absolute shit out of something in your room. <laughs> <laughs> to get all that wrath and hatred out. That's some good morning exercise. Indeed, indeed. I'm imagining, you know, waking up early in the morning in some, uh, this is Victorian era, right? Are we talking about? Yes. Although the Americans are not under the reign of Queen Victoria, so they're in the Gilded Age. Yes. This is, so it's Gilded Age America. I'm imagining every morning in the house, uh, the master wakes up. The servants have been up long before him getting the toast ready, as we have covered in an episode of Antiques Freaks before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and as that is happening, they, they, they just have to get used to the crashing and screaming as the uh, master chooses to box some object in his room for the first 10 or 15 minutes that he is awake. Yes. Every, every <laughs> single morning. Just, just it happens. I think when they say box, they mean not necessarily making contact with the object with your fist, but rather thrusting at it and parrying away from it as if it had arms with which to fight you. Well, that's less fun. I, I just imagine. I know. Your way is way more fun, but unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think as directed. And he has to get, like, the master of the house has to get a new thing every once in a while because he has completely destroyed, I don't know, like, the letterbox that he had in there or his an end table pen. a coat stand <laughs> the whole yeah every every week we have to keep replacing all the furniture in there i wish you would find some other form of manly exercise but you're just, just keeping swimming. all of gardner massachusetts employed so by all means work my furniture <laughs> just go riding or driving instead please i bought you this book to suggest to you some other manly exercises and then he just starts punching the book i know he just boxed the book and now he can't read that at all either Okay, well, that's my second favorite chapter. Uh, I do not want to go without mentioning how the latter half of, I want to say, the chapter on conversation is just a list of the author's least favorite cliches. <laughs> yes. Um, that was... Uh, and his deeply this, sarcastic reactions to them. It had this vibe of, like, a dude's first stand-up set. It does, very much so. Um, do you have that section before you can? I do. I have some choice examples before me, such as... I'm going to give you a bed of, like, uh, stock laughter under this. Perhaps oh, a jazz excellent, excellent. <laughs> He kept me standing out in the cold so long, I thought I should have waited forever. There is not a particle of probability that such a thought could have been for one moment entertained. I went to the meeting, but had hard work to get in, for the place was crowded to suffocation. In this case, in justice to the veracity of the relator, it is necessary to suppose that the sexful means have been used for his recovery. Oh my god, that's so funny! He is as tall as a church spire. I have met with some tall fellows in my time, though the spire of a church is somewhat taller than the tallest of them. <laughs> oh, 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 so hilarious! You don't say so. Why, it was enough to kill him. 
The fact that it did not kill him is sufficient to reply to this unfounded observation, but no remark could be too absurd for an unbridled tongue. Oh, it's quite true, sir. Quite true. Yeah, that's the vibe through this. It's like he just has something against exaggerations, which have long been the way people express themselves. Yes, that's kind of how English works. <laughs> through comparison and exaggeration and metaphor and simile and idiom. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I meant. This has like dude's first stand-up set vibes. It was like, oh, he was as tall as a church spire. He wasn't really as tall as a church spire because if he was, he'd be pretty tall. Am I right, folks? Am I right? He couldn't even fit in the house. He was tall as a church spire. Come on, guys. Tip your waiters. And, that, and the other line about like, if he was so fat, he couldn't fit through the door. Well, I've never met a doorway that was too small for a real man. <laughs> like, ugh. Ugh, get better material, dude. Your your tight five is not tight at all. No, in fact, it's it's rather lengthy. Yeah. <laughs> as it so happens. It actually took me more like 10 minutes to read the whole thing, so. <laughs> Snappier, please, and just actually just cut this section altogether. It's, it's a loose hour, I would say. <laughs> Maybe this is part of his have no personality thing. <laughs> He's just had so many bad reactions to his humor in public that he's decided no one's allowed to make jokes anymore. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, Ken. Well, we've been going at length already. We're already approaching just about an hour here, and I, you know, um, I shall not tarry you any longer. I've stopped you in the streets to have a discussion <laughs> of etiquette here, um, but I do want to give you the opportunity before you go. Do you have anything else you'd like to point out about this? I do appreciate some good pieces of advice, particularly... Never visit a literary man, an artist, any man whose profession allows him to remain at home at the hours when he is engaged in the pursuit of his profession. I would like to add podcasting to that list of professions. I, you know what? Yeah, I do, a lo- I do a lot of editing during the day, and I have some people messaging me during those times, and I do get annoyed, although there's no way for them to know that that is happening. <laughs> so it was most ungentlemanly of me to expect them to know that offhand, but... I, I do get annoyed when I'm trying to cut through an episode of Terrible Book Club and three people message me at the same time. Indeed, indeed. I am at my profession, sir. <laughs> a profession that I am not paid for. But, well, I, we have patrons, so somewhat. But, you know. Um, any other hits? If you are engaged in any profession which you follow at home and receive a caller, you may, during the daytime, invite him into your library, study, or the room in which you work. And, unless you use your pen... You may work while he is with you. I'm still trying to figure out why you can't use a pen in the presence of the other man. Is it supposed to be like when you're trying to write something, you can't multitask and like pay attention to what you're writing? Because, I mean, we there is that whole chapter about letter writing, which I don't even think is worth mentioning, to be honest with you. No, it's, it's a dud, frankly. But like, yeah. I'm struggling to think of a form of work a gentleman could do at home in the 19th century that wouldn't involve a pen. What what could he be doing? And why is using a pen any less gentlemanly than using, I don't know, watchmaker's tools, a cobbler's hammer? Like what? <laughs> what is it about the pen that so offends this author? 
I maybe I, I really do think it's this sort of like splitting your brain between writing out sentences versus speaking to someone. So it maybe it makes you seem distracted if you're writing something down, but also trying to hold a conversation at the same time. Perhaps. That's the only logical step that I could take there. But, you know, if you're like working on a watch or something, which is far more intricate and demands more of your attention, that's fine to carry a conversation while you're doing that. (laughs) The other good advice I found was never talk of ropes to a man whose father was hanged, which, you know... (laughs) That was kind of out of the blue, too, right? That was in, like, just one of those It chapters. was out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And vanished like, into the midst once again in the French fashion. Never to be seen again. <laughs> Slipped away. There was also the sentence, is not life made up of details? Which, I mean, technically, sure. Yeah. You know what? You're not wrong. That's one of those phrases where it like it seems kind of deep the first time you read it, and then you just realize you really said kind of nothing there, dude. Kind of like, there are some people who, like the clouds, only exist to weep. Which feels like an Evanescence lyric. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I can hear Amy singing that right now. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that one's a little <laughs> bit more poetic than the last one, but still very uh, surface level. I'm 14 and this is deep material. <laughs> I am also kind of admiring the phrasing for no reputation could be more enviable than that of being known as a man who no consideration could force to soil his soul with a lie. (laughs) That that's extravagantly put. Let me tell you, there's a lot of personality in that quote, actually. I think perhaps Perhaps too much personality. Uh, I will leave you with the hand that wears riches on its fingers has rarely worked to win them. Oh, yeah, that's that's totally another sentence that, yeah, you've got something there. Wait, I don't actually. I feel like it would punch harder if it wasn't in a paragraph just telling you not to wear rings. <laughs> uh, that was another thing is that <laughs> jewelry that isn't a scarf pin or a wedding ring is most ungentlemanly because it is ostentatious and I suppose has personality. And even the scarf pin's a little right, dodgy. Yeah, because you, you've been saying, like, don't get a wild scarf pin. Just a regular scarf pin, please, sir. Okay, Ken. So I feel like we've covered a good amount of here. And if we were to go into further detail about this, we would never leave here. And it would be most ungentlemanly for us to both keep each other here. So the final thing that I kind of wanted to have just a short... We would be trapped in etiquette forever. However, I am pleased to note you have passed your gentleman's exam at long last. Oh, thank you. You are freed Um, of your knickerbockers and bow tie. Oh, once and for all, I am just going to strip them off and run directly into the ocean, bearing my arms for all ladies to (laughs) see. Oh, God, no, the ladies. (laughs) Okay, so what I wanted to leave us with is just a short little rumination on etiquette then versus etiquette now now certainly we don't have a long list of different types of coats to wear at certain parties or when we're out driving or riding or you know certain rules to follow in different seasons about how big the scarf pin can be but there are certain social pressures that still exist. I mean, there's still like the, hey, give your seat up to a pregnant lady on the bus kind of a thing. Or give your seat up to anyone who looks like they could really use it on the bus. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to ask you, how much do you think, um, what is the spillover from etiquette rules of this era 
to etiquette rules now? Like, how much have we just shaved away sort of the unnecessary things for sake of like, oh, well, that's a lady. I have to be deferential to the lady versus sort of, you know, things that actually help people out. I think we have, for the better, shaved off a great deal of the sexism and etiquette. Not all of it, but a great deal of it to now... It's not just a lady in the street we offer assistance to, but also anyone in the street in need of assistance, regardless of gender presentation. Yes. Um, and I I enjoy that part. I would not enjoy is the wrong word, but like I try to be that person as much as I can possibly be because I'm always thinking about, you know, am I in this person's way? Am I, am I just needlessly taking up space? My huge pet peeve that was brought up in this book actually was people that stand in the middle of the sidewalk Yes. Busy sidewalk. That was yes. fantastic advice. And I agree 100%. If you want to read your phone or like check directions on your GPS or something, just put yourself next to the wall. Just stand off to the side. It's actually shadier there usually anyway. So you can probably see whatever you're reading better. If you're taking a call or something, just stand off to the side. So, I mean, that's just, again, personal pet peeve of mine. So I think things like that still carry over. And we should be thinking of, you know, our effect on people around us as much as we can, but not to the point where you're, you know, I think I do it a little bit too much sometimes. Like when I'm in a grocery store, a very crowded grocery store, I will endeavor to not look more than 15 seconds tops at any shelf that is before me. And if I can't read it because my eyes are bad, well, then I just don't get to have anything in that section of the store until I come back on a separate occasion entirely to look at the shelf. And hopefully I feel like you could maybe better. make a lap around on the exact same visit to the grocery store, but you know. <laughs> I also want to get out of I appreciate what you're trying to do there. Yeah, so I mean, some things like that, I think, are me taking that too far. And perhaps um, I could use an examination on that of like, hey, other people around you don't care too much as long as you're not planting yourself there for, you know, three solid minutes reading the ingredients list on the yeah. instant noodles that you're buying because, hey, they're all the same shit anyway. I'd like to think we've replaced a lot of etiquette with empathy, just kind of not necessarily living by strict rules, but rather living in a way where we show kindness to others and assist as needed. Exactly. Kind of try to see things from the perspective of the people who have to live around us. Yeah. And, and kind of adjust our behavior to make them most comfortable and make things easier for them. And that's shaving off all this stuff about like, well, make sure you enter the room with the lady on your left arm. Like, who gives a shit? what arm it's on, or even if she wants your fucking arm, she can walk there on her own if she's able-bodied, of course. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I imagine there are some people out there that, you know, like there's the real dorks that might read this book today and like insist on following every rule because, hey, this book said this is how to be a gentleman. But please, God, don't. Don't do that. <laughs> Just think for a second about if you were in that situation, what would probably be the nicest thing to do? And just follow that guiding light and i think we'll all be a little bit nicer to each other yeah all right ken um with that thank you for proctoring my gentleman exam and being a very lenient grader for me because i feel <laughs> like i as if i just got by on the skin of my teeth here well see i graded on a curve and you are the only student this semester so <laughs> true and i didn't make an absolute <laughs> fool of myself by cramming myself into the podcast table nor sitting a yard from it no this is true all right. Well, with that, um, we will not take the French goodbye, but announce our departure here instead.
As always, of course, I must bid formal goodbye to our patrons and Kofiites, I suppose we're calling them now. Thank you to Dari, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Lynn, Senior, Jakub, Bobby Black Cat, Lycoris, Elliot, Kieran, Martin, Jay, Scott, Lutrek, CTAP1, Miri, Yanka, David, Julius, Anya, Anonymous, Patricia, Austin, Donnie, Crimson Paladin, and from Kofi Lakstodes. Thank you all very much for supporting our ability to continue doing this. If you want to help support the show, you can subscribe or watch on YouTube, leave a comment, like a video. You can donate $1, $5, or $10 a month on Patreon to access videos, Mystery Science Theater 3000-style commentary over weird stuff that we found out there that could be book-related. Usually we try to make it related to one of the books, but sometimes it ain't. And any other random audio-video nonsense that we can put up there. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads if you're on those platforms, or you can send us a message through any of those platforms. Or you can send us an email directly at terriblebookclub at gmail.com. Most importantly, though, we'd really love it if you shared the show on social media or told at least one friend about the show. Let everyone know how you're spending your time. Ken, if you would like, why don't you just tell the nice folks here um, about your personality and what you like to do on other podcasts. Well, if you'd like to hear more of this kind of nonsense, you can head on over to the Antiques Freaks podcast, where we often have Chris and Paris guesting to read Karnacki the Ghostfinder with us, which is a Sherlock Holmes knockoff where he hunts ghosts instead. We also have a variety of episodes on topics of general antiquary, such as uranium glass and soon Fabergé eggs where you can once again hear Paris, who is Sir Not Appearing in this episode. Yes. That was the Girls' Night Antiques Freaks episodes. It was, yes. So while they're having their fun over here, we're having way more fun over here, Ken. We're talking about (laughs) rules and shit. The funnest thing there is. (laughs) We picked the driest possible book (laughs) to tell us how to live our lives. This is an absolutely wild stag do. Oh, man, I can't, man, I, we got so wild the other night. We sat around and we talked about rules on how to behave. I told my dude, like, oh, man, you let that lady in without taking her by the left arm. You're wild, bro. You're wild. <laughs> You're a mad lad, you are. <laughs> All righty. Anything else to plug here, Ken? Um, if you would like to read a good book about life in the 19th century, consider Mr. Warren's Profession by Sebastian Northwell or... Hold Fast by Sebastian Northwell, or The Haunting of Heatherhurst Hall by Sebastian Northwell. Okay, Ken. Um, with that, I bid you adieu. Au reservoir. In a most gentlemanly manner. Bye bye <laughs>